we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Welcome to Encountering Silence and welcome to the collective slowdown. I am finding that in the midst of this crisis and pandemic that we find ourselves in right now, that this collective slowdown has really pointed for me to the fact that we belong to each other. And my moral and ethical responsibility to my fellow human is about the collective us. And at the same time, this responsibility to you, to me, to us was there all along. So it's not only about what does it mean, but who have I been failing to listen to all along? This collective slowdown tells us a lot about our systems, our systems of injustice and oppression, our systems of capitalism, which fail under collective care. It's obvious that capitalism cannot withstand this pandemic. And these systems are set up for ableists and white people. And this all points time and time again to the fact that we belong to each other. And we are long overdue to listen to the voices who have been telling us these truths all along. Folks who have lived under these systems and who have been pointing to the need for collective care since forever. People with disabilities, chronic health, people who are under all forms of oppression. And it's about time that we heeded the demand to slow. And then there's nature and nature's demand to slow in the ways in which that she's telling us, take a break, relax, and um, offering time to heal alongside her, which is really beautiful. So this collective slowdown says to me, look around, look at what you've been missing, look at what you've been disconnected from, you know, our fellow human and nature. So this responsibility to my fellow human, which was there all along, but one I failed to see until a physical distancing, social distancing, made me recognize our great sense of togetherness. And this kind of pandemic requires the vision of common good and collective effort of humanity. A cry from the marginalized and the oppressed that has been on repeat, and now we're going to listen? So when I think of this pandemic, I think about who am I listening to and whose wisdom should I be heeding? Am I listening to the whitewashed news of Donald Trump and American politics? Or am I listening to the tender and rightfully raging voices who have always known? So it wouldn't be like me to not begin this discussion without, you know, a Thomas Merton quote. So um, I came across something in Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, which is his book the other day, where he talks about the heresy of individualism. And he says, the heresy of individualism, thinking oneself a completely self-sufficient unit and asserting this imaginary unit against all others. The affirmation of the self is simply not the other. But when you seek to affirm your unity by denying that you have anything to do with anyone else, by negating everyone else in the universe, what is there left to affirm? Even if there were something to affirm, you would have no breath left with which to affirm it. The true way is just the opposite. The more I am able to affirm others to say yes to them in myself, by discovering them in myself, in myself and them, the more real I am. 
I am fully real if my own heart says yes to everyone. So guys, as we dive into this week and the weeks to come of our separation and isolation from loved ones and family members and each other, I just want to pose the question to us to begin with is uh, what voices are we listening to in times of crisis and what wisdom are we heeding? Well, I hope this answer isn't a cop-out, but I've been listening primarily to St. Benedict and Julian of Norwich. So I'm approaching it, you know, you, you've, you've approached this, this historical moment in terms of it, kind of its socio-political implications. I tend to default to the work I do, which is, of course, being in conversation with the mystics. And for me, what has been, I guess, the really interesting kind of narrative in my mind, and it'll be interesting to, to put this alongside what you've just shared with us, Cassidy, about you know, who, whose voices are we listening to kind of in this moment. And I'm, I'm looking back at history, which, which may be a privileged thing to do, but that's what I'm doing. You know, so much of the conversation about contemplation that is happening in our time, you know, in, in the second decade of the 21st century has been about how do we integrate the contemplative and the active? What's the balance point? Where do they touch? Where are they interwoven? And I think that's a vital conversation. I don't want to in any way give anyone the impression that I'm dismissing that conversation been very much part of that conversation myself. But what I think, again, for me, the COVID-19 pandemic and then, you know, the kind of the, the community request to shelter at home has meant, for me, it has meant going back and revisiting this question that silence and solitude and stillness and contemplation do not exist just to facilitate action. That there is a place in which silence and solitude and stillness exist simply because they are good and they are necessary. And that sometimes we have to shelter at home. Sometimes we have to isolate. Sometimes we have to withdraw. And again, kind of speaking from the voice of, of white male privilege, most of the times when I have withdrawn, it has always been a privileged withdrawing. I get to go on retreat. Mm -hmm. I get to go spend a weekend in the woods. You know, mm -hmm. I get to fly to California and go walk around the Cathedral of Muir Woods. It's all under my control. I get to choose. If I am spending a week at a monastery and I want to disengage from the silence, I can pull out my phone and get on Facebook. And maybe mm -hmm. I'm breaking the rules, but that's okay. I'm a privileged person. I get to break the rules. Mm -hmm. So I think it's fascinating to, to be in this place where I'm not calling the shots, where there is this larger social mandate that says, you need to be quiet, you need to be still, you need to be solitary, you need to be withdrawn. And 
and it, what's humbling for me is, is seeing how much I'm resisting it. And of course, all you have to do is turn on the news to see how there's so much resistance to it in our society as a whole. We are a mm -hmm. society that does not know how to be still and to be solitary. And, and that has really kind of, that's playing on the nightly news right now. And so I'm curious, you know, and another, another uh, line that has really been kind of just bouncing around my, my awareness is that line from, I think it was Pascal, who said that so much of evil stems from humanity's inability to sit still in a room. You know, and then, but then compare that maybe a more positive spin on that is from one of the desert elders who said, go and sit in your cell and your cell will teach you everything. So, so maybe, you know, the other question is so this question of whose voices are we choosing to listen to, but then also what lessons are we choosing to allow ourselves to learn? And, mm -hmm. and, you know, and I think for me, one of the lessons I'm learning is, oh no, Carl, you are not in control. You are not even in control of your, of your own spiritual life and of your own relationship with silence and solitude. And that's been humbling, but I think it can also be liberating. Yeah, yeah. You, you're reminding me of um, something I read on Twitter the other day, a friend of the podcast, Celeste. She came across a monk at uh, Genesee Abbey in New York who said, this monk said, one thing for sure, it will make everyone a monk, willing or not. That might be a good thing in the end. Which made, made me chuckle. And, you know, something, something certainly to listen to. Another thing I want to note is that, you know, with working at a church right now as a student pastor, uh, one thing that's been really, really humbling for me is to recognize, again, these, these voices that, that we've been failing to listen to um, by moving online all the people that are now able to come. And all of the, you know, people that, you know, couldn't, couldn't make it up in time or have disabilities that didn't allow them to get to church and just uh, really recognizing the failure in, um, in some of our systems that were, that have been set up prior to this. Right. So yeah, that's just something else I want to mention is just, it's been a really humbling listening time for me. And yeah, Carl, I, I really second the, and I'm sure Kevin would third the really strong, potent recognition that we are not in control. Mm -hmm. That's exactly the point. You asked the question, what voices are we listening to? What wisdom, you know, and I, I kind of see the contrast here. And like Carl, you know, I default to my work and my work right now, I'm, I'm an educator and, you know, that's one of the things I do. I teach and... And now I'm online with my students and I'm teaching classes. And it's actually interesting. Two of my classes of the three I'm teaching this semester are have silence and kind of the way we know the world as a, as a major component. A uh, philosophy class that I'm teaching and, and a, a, re, a world religions class. Um, and in both of those times, I'm, I'm talking about this idea of silence and trying to teach the students. And... What's funny is, so I'm listening to the voices of philosophers and 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 religious uh, people through the ages, and I keep coming back to, so this distinction you've made, what are the voices we're listening to, and then yet, what is the wisdom? 
Well, if I'm going to be honest, the voices I'm listening to are the voices of panic and chaos in my head. Um, the anxiety, mm. uh, my, you know, the fact that uh, I, I, the worry I have, and you would, you would hope that you know you spend all your time doing philosophy and religion and these questions, and you say, oh, I, you know. Kevin, I say to myself, Kevin, you've been doing this for years. You should be a little bit more advanced. You should know a little better about this. And, you know, you have a contemplative practice and everything else. And and yet all what contemplative practice and the study recon- I recognize is all the places that my mind thinks and talks and chatters at myself and how I mm-hmm. believe those stories um, and how I end up getting grounded there. And, we, and as Carl said, it, it, we kind of collectively our culture because we don't have silence, because we're not good with stillness, as we said in our opening episode, you know, our pilot episode about how we want to put silence back on the map because our culture doesn't do it. Well, if you don't have silence, then all that you have left are the voices, are the action, are the individualism, you know, the, the heresy of individualism. That's all you have left. And it's a lie because, as, as Carl has already said very eloquently, stillness is there. And as you said, Cassidy, the voices have been calling to us, the common good, the people for the centuries, you know, have been calling to us, the, the poor, the disabled, those who have left, been left on the margins, like, hey, I'm part of this picture too. And it's as if silence has called to us. And we say, no, 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 we have to do things. I, I have to be busy. I, you know, my experience is important. I need to go out into the world and to do and to check that box. Yay, the economy boo sitting still and doing nothing. And I get it. As Carl said, this isn't an either or. That's the catch. We're not saying, oh my God, experience is bad and action is bad and doing is bad. No, 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 no. See, that's that's more of the problem. That's more of the this or that, that kind of making the world into these stark contrasts. What stillness and silence offers to us and this is the wisdom that I keep calling back to, the voices I'm listening to, the philosophers and the religious people through the centuries who are saying, no, if you're still, if you're silent, that is a huge piece of who you are. And it's not just you. In the stillness and in the silence, everyone is there. Every voice matters. Every mm-hmm. body matters. And I say that that way. Every body matters. So anything that exists is there and is not erased. And so my privilege is gone in the stillness and in the silence. And that's uncomfortable because we've been trained to listen to the voice that you are nothing unless you do. You are nothing unless you make money. You are nothing unless you think some great thought, Kevin. You are nothing unless you achieve something and make your life worth something. And that's the heresy of individualism. See, the, the, the teaching, what I fall back, I, my other class I'm teaching is a, is a social justice class. And I point out at the beginning of that class, I say the theology of the Catholic Church, which was about Catholic social justice. So the, the theology is you are not just an individual. You were made in the image and likeness of a trinity. And that means you're a person, you're individual, some part there's an individual piece but then you're a collective, you're both. And you need to hold those as both because you're made in the image of a divine that's somehow individual, but not individualist, not not by itself. It's somehow individual in relationship. It's both. 
And I think that's the key is that you said at the start, systems in place. Silence versus systems is almost the way you kind of laid it out. Systems in place make us do a black or white. They make us focus Mm -hmm. on a thing or an individuality. But systems can never capture the totality of, of the ineffable experience of being alive and being present to all things. And, and that's why silence and that's why stillness. So for me, I'm struggling with the voices that tell me to worry and to be upset and to, and to be fearful. And those are the voices in my head and I see it out in the news too, but it's in my head. You know, I mean, I, I'm very good at turning on the news and getting angry at quote, those people doing it wrong. But I know in my quiet time that those exact voices are the voices in my head. I'm, I have those voices. I have those exact same thoughts and it's making me upset. But then in the walk, there is the grace and the quiet, the gift that's given that there is another voice. There are the wise voices that say, hey, true wisdom, true meaning and true purpose, what it means to be a human being is learned in the stillness and silence. And you, you need to have that skill. And I, more than ever, learning the skill of listening and letting go of who I think I am and my privilege and my control and realizing it's not my terms and being and learning to go with that is really what I'm sifting and struggling with at this point. Let's talk a little bit about that resistance of control that we're all experiencing. And right, because we've all, we all have our various practices in our life and silence is all about releasing control and all about letting go and being and melting into this vision of unity that we're talking about, right? This collective common good, this oneness, this all together now. Absolutely. Little beetles for you. (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk about just because that resistance is strong. I know it's strong in all of us in different ways because it's so humbling. It is so, I mean, it brings me to tears. It is, it's tiring. It's humbling because it's the reality. I'm, you know, it, it is the reality because even in a sense, when we are doing our silence practices, so to speak, right, we still have control. We have choice. Like Carl was saying earlier, we have choice to engage in this. Mm -hmm. We don't have a choice right now. We don't have a choice to disengage with stillness and silence and solitude right now. We're literally being asked to be solitary, be in our homes, be away. There's not choice. And so our resistance to melting into that vision of unity is all about this, I think, this individualistic nature of American society. Mm. I think our country in particular is having a more difficult time with this because of our individualism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can do an entire... I I actually do that in my (laughs) social justice class. We actually point out the difference of American culture, that, that worldview versus kind of a Catholic social justice assumption. Like, and the two don't always line up because, well, I mean, 
Christianity the two, is, is the too, too hardly line up. It, yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, because, because the problem is, is that you know, and I point this out. My students don't think about this too much. You just assume your reality is the truth, right? I mean, if you if you what you're living, and I don't blame anybody that I do it to myself. We all do it. You assume what you're living is normal. And, and you kind of say, hey, this is what's going on. And I kind of point out to my students and you see them scratch their head. I go, you know, Christianity is 2,000 years old. When, when the doctrines are being written, there was no such thing as capitalism. There was no such thing as America. There was no such thing as uh, individualism the way we have individualism now. Any of the kind of modern terms, even the word religion is a, is a modern term. It didn't mean the things that it meant 2,000 years ago. And, and so— so it's it's this very thing. These these systems are modern systems, and you try to go back and read an old story like the Tao Te Ching, or the Quran, or you know, or Christianity, and you're putting a modern system on that lens. It's it's not going to line up. And until you notice that, you know, yeah, it's exactly that issue. Briefly, I just want to say this: I find the struggle. You're saying that resistance. I, I'm really focusing on the resistance, and I think it's because of this point is that I was raised in this culture and I was trained from the time, and it's, again, I don't blame my parents. I don't blame my teachers. This is what you do. This is what you normally do is you, te- you take a child and you teach them how to function in a society. Here's what we do. And our society has this kind of, as you said, this heresy that Merton points out. It's just embedded in there. And so what you've been trained is your whole life is to focus on thinking, words, achievement, doing. And so you're trained. That's kind of like, I just think of it like a habit. Think about you train your mind and your body to do certain things over and over again. They become natural. You don't think about it anymore. I do not have to think about my walking. I don't have to think about tying my shoes. They're just built into my body and into my mind. Same thing here. So now when you have something like silence and you're pushed and you're saying, hey, silence, stillness, we don't have places for that in our culture. You know, it, we used to, you know, 500, 600, 700 years ago, our culture had these moments, but we don't anymore. You have technology and things that over paper over places where we needed to be quiet and still and wait. You don't have to wait anymore. I press a button, I get it. You know, I, it, it, so, and again, this is not an anti-technology rant. It's just to notice that, hey, there is a piece of what it means to be human that everyone assumed for centuries that we don't have to assume anymore. So now when it's pushed back upon us and you notice it and you say, hey, this is good for us. There's all these studies psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, and yet we're not doing it. And then it's forced upon us. Well, of course it's a struggle because you're fighting a habit, an ingrained habit that your culture has taught you. Do, do, think, think, achieve, achieve. And now all of a sudden somebody says, no, no, don't do that. And you're like, wait, what? And I I find that's kind of where I struggle, you know? This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us.
And also in the being versus the doing, the being and the doing are, are very much the same right now in that the doing nothing is doing everything. Me staying home is doing. Correct. Um, is being a part of the collective common good. Yeah. I think it's maybe human nature to struggle. And we, we are creatures of conflict and creatures of resistance. And the beautiful thing is that the silence is always there. I was so touched when I saw that there were dolphins swimming in Venice. There was just something about that that opened my heart up. And rush hour has all but disappeared in Atlanta. I mean, there's still traffic because there are still people working and some of whom need to be working like healthcare providers and some of whom probably shouldn't be working, but they're doing it anyways. But it's not what it was a month ago. And I think we struggle and we struggle until we release. And the silence is so generous and so welcoming that as soon as we release, it's there and it welcomes us. And I'm reading this amazing book right now. It's kind of a spoiler alert to our listeners. I'm reading an amazing book right now called Good White Racist. And it's about white privilege and about how white privilege is invisible to white people, not to people of color, but to white people. And of course, in reading it, it's humbling for somebody who has white privilege and to see how much I have benefited from white privilege in many unconscious ways, in some, some ways that I've been aware of, in many unconscious ways as well. You know, and, and her whole point behind the title, Good White Racist, is that a good person wants to step out from that privilege. And the reality is, is that justice is, is to politics what silence is to spirituality. Justice is the natural state of things. We actually have to work at injustice. We have to work at oppression. Now, after however many centuries of you know, institutionalized oppression, we may not have to be conscious about it. In fact, that's part of the deal is you don't have to be conscious of it. You just get to be a beneficiary of it. But there's still a price you have to pay. You have to resist any efforts to dismantle. And yet the dismantling of it is what goodness calls us to. And I think the reality is, is that for those of us who are concerned about dismantling injustice in whatever form, whether it's racism, whether it's sexism, whether it's homophobia, whether it's economic injustice, whether it's environmental injustice, there, you know, there's so many issues that I think so many people are rightly committed to addressing. The reality is, is that what is promised to us, and, and I'm going to speak as, as a follower of Jesus right now, other people use different language, but what is promised to us is the goodness of God. That it is the goodness of God where we find true justice, where we find freedom from oppression, from being an oppressor or being oppressed, where we find silence that allows us to be who we truly are, which is not some sort of an individual atomized person who's just trying to get as big a piece of the pie as we can before everybody else gets their piece. Which again, is kind of the fiction that has been foisted on us. It's kind of a truism that people with less economic resources more naturally share than people with more. 
that is humbling. And yet I think that's evidence again that what is good is not something we have to work at, it's something we have to allow. I think one of the reasons why there's so much resistance, take, take the take a knee movement, why there's so much resistance among racist whites to the take a knee movement, I would argue is because they know in their heart that the only reason they're opposed to it is because it makes them uncomfortable. That they know in their heart that we live in a racist society where people of color uh, receive violence so much more than, than whites do. So I don't know if this is a tangent or not, but it's on my mind because I'm reading that. But maybe that's back to Cassie's question. What voices are you listening to? You know, and Carrie's is one of the voices I'm listening to right now. I just think you're also making the point that times of crisis lead us, as we allow ourselves to melt into that vision of unity, lead us to the truth and longing for the truth to be seen and for justice to be seen on this earth. Exactly. It gets back to the how silence versus systems. The thing, the thing is, is we do need to think and we need to make, you need to organize, right? You need to, human beings need to have ideas and words and systems in place to help structure your day, the way you organize and do things, of course. But the problem becomes is that the systems become a living thing. As you just said, Carl, they're in place. And so then you just say, oh, that's a natural thing. And it's not a natural thing. It's something you've imposed over and built into that. I said, you know, built into it is individualism, but you've just pointed out it's not just individualism. There's also kind of a, a racist motive built into certain things. Various kind of isms, as Cassidy said at the beginning, get built into systems. And so if we allow for stillness, it gets uncomfortable because we start to see, wow, we have systems in place and they help and they hurt. They do both. And then the question is, if you're a person of privilege, you say, well, I like the help part. I'm not sure I want to dismantle what's kind of good for me at the moment. I mean, no one does. No, no one, that's what I was saying before. No, no one wants to let go. I don't want to let go of the stories I'm telling myself personally, you know, that I, this isn't a, conf, a confession chamber, so I'm not going to tell you what my own personal stories are, but I mean, I'm not, I don't want to let go of those stories, you know? And yet, as Cassie said, if, if we could let go and melt into this other place, this, this other way, then you start to realize those other stories are, are doing a disservice. That yes, they help on one level, but they are incomplete. And we really should have this attitude, I really wish we built into us, this attitude of we need systems, but they constantly have to be reformed, refixed. We need to go into the quiet so that we can see how can we then come back out with new imagination and new ideas that will fix it. Because it constantly has to be fixed because ideas can never actually capture the justice or the love or the common good or anything, because it's a partial thing. It's, a, it's just the nature of systems, the nature of ideas. So I, I don't think it's tangent at all. I think it's all tying up. Uh, what we're talking about here is all interconnected with what we've said so far. Well, as we wrap up today, I love that we have no conclusions and no knowing, and we certainly never claim to. And I would love to just check in with you guys just to see What's keeping you afloat these days as you spend your time at home? For me, it's been reading, and I 
recently read a book of poetry by Audre Lorde, which was absolutely beautiful. And I am reading Blessed Are the Crazy by Pastor Sarah Lund, who I work with at First Congregational UCC. So how about you guys? Well, I mentioned Carrie Connolly's Good White Racist, which has just been such such an amazing book for for me to read and and I would do you know I think I told you Casty I wish I had enough money to buy one for every white person in America but I don't so people just <laughs> go out and buy your own copy but I'm also reading Rick Hansen's Buddha's Brain I'm reading mm-hmm. Gerald May's The Awakened Heart I'm reading a lot about the heart mm-hmm. right now because I'm writing about the heart so Teilhard de Chardin's The Heart of the Matter uh, Howard Thurman's Meditations of the Heart, and mm. um, yeah, so so like you, you know, reading has certainly been been really really important. And it's funny you mentioned the Beatles because I'm listening to the Beatles a lot lately. But you know, you I'm go. old school Beatles fan, so yeah, mm. yeah. I, I'm doing reading and a lot of outdoor time is keeping me sane. Um, a long long walks with the dog, uh, at least at least an hour, if not more. I'm getting probably five or six miles a day in. Uh, at least by the time I, I go to bed, uh, sometimes more than that, and uh, moving my body and and just trying to be uh, present to that. And, you know, so Carl says he's writing about the heart, and I'm currently putting together a program with my brother that's about wellness, and so we're doing a lot of body stuff. So I'm I'm learning body movement and, and things. But then my reading, uh, I'm doing a lot of reading about nature, a lot of it. So currently I'm reading a book, and again, it's a horrible title. I bought this book a long time ago. I bought this way before I knew there was going to be a pandemic. And it was provocative then. And now it's even more provocative. But the title of the book is Learning to Die. And it's about wisdom in the age of the climate crisis. So the idea of uh, what you've we've already talked about, this idea of learning to let go of control. And that we mm-hmm. as a culture tries to control so much. And that's kind of us fighting against death. Uh, we're afraid of death. And that part of the natural cycle is to learn to die and to be okay with that. And I've been thinking of Teresa's uh, Transitus book uh, as well, uh, thinking yeah. about that. And then I'm reading, uh, rereading some old books because, again, I'm doing some stuff about nature and wilderness uh, that I might – looks like I'm going to be creating something about that and releasing some things. Um, and I'm reading The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram. And I'm reading the the book, The Embers and the Stars. And I can never say the author's name because it's uh, it's a Polish name and I always mispronounce mm-hmm. it. But it's a philosophy book. It was written in the 80s. That's a mm-hmm. very, uh, very powerful book about nature and learning to be with the natural rhythm of things and learning to be quiet and in the dark and still and unknow. Um, so it's basically body and nature yeah. and reading. So, Yeah. And I would just love to give a little shout out to everyone who is going through this alone and people who maybe are living alone. Mm-hmm. And to those of you who don't, I encourage you to reach out to those people. I am one of those people. Um, and I am doing fine. And I just know that this is a really great time for all of us to really keep in touch and to love on each other in new and unique ways. Um, We're all creating new routines right now and new rhythms, which could be a whole nother episode. But point is check in on your people, love your people and know that uh, we care about each of you out there. 
and that we all are together in the silence, reminding that when we, when we, if we can spend time in the silence, then we all come together. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So finally, I would like to read a few words from a poem titled Stay Home by Wendell Berry. And we'll be posting this in our show notes um, once we release this episode. So I will wait here in the fields. I will be standing in the woods. I am home. Don't come with me. You stay home too. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash EncounteringSilence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.